0: I was actually thinking on Friday, we were at Senior Saints and listening to a song about the blood, and I was sitting there looking at my two boys, and Lawrence in particular, he's my firstborn, and I was thinking about what it would have been like to have been a Hebrew father on that night of the Passover in Egypt, and uh sitting there thinking, looking over at that lamb before it had been slain and sacrificed, and then looking over at your son. And knowing that there is a one-to-one correlation between them two. This boy gets to live because that lamb is going to die. And how grateful you'd be, Brother Charlie, for that lamb when you're looking at it and you know this lamb is getting ready to die. We're going to take this lamb, draw a blade across its throat, open its veins, and the life of this lamb is going to drain out of it so that my son can live. You know, it's easy sometimes we, we hear this and it's a truth. God so loved the whole world, didn't he? He, he loved the world, but he gave his only begotten son. And, and we just understand instinctively and, and biblically, scripturally that Christ died for all men. I think sometimes in the midst of that, we lose the preciousness of that understanding that he didn't just die for all men. He did die for all men. But He did not only die for all men, He died for every man. That's what the Bible says in Hebrews, that He tasted death for every man. That lamb died so that my son could live. That lamb died so that I could live. That lamb died, and it was not just a lamb, but it was the only begotten Son of God, His precious, perfect, eternal Son that He gave on the cross of Calvary. I mean, think about that. The thing that makes it precious to me is to think this lamb dies so that I don't have to give up my son. But God didn't just give a lamb, He gave His son. How much more precious it is when we realize He gave up His son so that I don't have to give up my son. He gave up His child so that my child, my wife, my mother, my father, my brother, my sister, my loved ones do not have to die in their sins What a loving God we have. It takes an unsaved, unregenerate mind to look at God and say, you're not fair, you're cruel, you're unkind. For surely when a man looks at what Calvary is, how could he say God's unkind? God didn't have to do that for you and me. That didn't make him God. He was God before he ever did that. He didn't have to do that to to become God or to stay God. He could have bypassed right past Calvary and it wouldn't have affected how much that He was God. He did that for you and me. He died for our loved ones and for us. He tasted death for every man. He didn't just give up a lamb. He gave up the Lamb of God, the Son of God. And oftentimes it's easy to just miss that, that one-to-one correlation. You say, preacher, He died for everybody. Yeah, that means He died for every single person. If you had been the only one, He would have died for you. He would have went to the cross of Calvary. If it had just been you walking around this world in your deadness and lostness, He would have went to Calvary just for you. What an amazing God we have. And what an impression it must have made on that little boy, that night in Egypt when they looked over and saw this lamb and recognized this lamb's going to die so that I don't have to. say, preacher, what changes when a sinner gets saved when they look and say, that lamb died so that I don't have to? He died in my place. I belonged on that cross, but he died in my place so that I do not have to die. Uh, You know, the Bible says the love of Christ constraineth us because we... Thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. In other words, the same thing that's true that I'm saying about your kids and my kids, about your life and my life, is true of all men. And if he would die for them, boy, shouldn't we love them enough to go and live Christ in front of them, share the gospel with them, tell them that that God loves them that much. Imagine, I mean, listen, imagine. There's people out here walking around think God hates them. Think God's mad at them. Think God's got an issue with them, got a problem with them. And you and I know that's not true. We know that, in fact, God loves them more than they love themselves, more than they could ever imagine being loved. And think about how cruel it would be for us to walk right by people that think God hates them and never take the time to stop and say, you know God loves you. He loves you. He died for you. That's how much He loves you. In a world that is cruel, that is cold, that is vicious, we have a glorious God that loves sinners. What an amazing thing. I just think we owe it. If he'd do that for us, man, surely that ain't too much to ask for us to do that for him. If he'd do all he's done for us, surely it's not too much to ask for us just to tell others what he's done. That's all we're doing. We're just telling other people what God's done. God didn't even ask us to do it. He said, I'll do it. It's a finished work. I've, I've already accomplished it. All you have to do is run around telling folks what I've done for them. Man, what a God we have. I tell you. And I'm just, I'm thankful for the Lamb tonight. I'm thankful for the Lamb tonight. Turn in your Bibles to James chapter 3. James chapter number 3. We'll try to have a little church here for a few moments and we'll have the Lord's Supper. James chapter number 3. This is a familiar passage of Scripture, I think, to most students in the Bible. You probably, if you sat in the church house, you probably heard it preached on time and again. And there's a real good possibility. I may say, I may not say anything that you've not heard before. But if I can stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that's what Peter said he was trying to do, I think we'll have accomplished a great thing tonight. James chapter 3, verse number 1, the Word of God says this, My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Behold, we put bits in the horses' mouths, that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. Behold also the ships, which though they be so great and are driven of fierce winds, yet are they go- turned about with a very small helm whithersoever the governor listeth. Even so the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. Behold how great a matter a little fire kindleth. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members that it defileth the whole body and setteth on fire the course of nature and it is set on fire of hell. For every kind of beasts and of birds and of serpents and of things in the sea is tamed and hath been tamed of mankind. But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Therewith bless we God, even the Father. And therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. Do the fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either a vine figs, So can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for the lamb. Thank you for your son. Thank you for that greatest of all sacrifices that you made for us. You gave your son so that my son could know Christ, so that I could know Christ, so that I could live and have life and have hope and have a home in heaven and a relationship with you. Lord, you gave so much that I might gain so much. How could I give so little to you? Lord, help me to give more. Help me to yield all of myself unto you in my life day by day, in my ministry, in my commitment and consecration. Lord, surely you are worthy of it all. I pray that you'd bless now the preaching of your word. May it speak to hearts for your glory. We ask it in Jesus name. Amen. James chapter number three, we have a, we could use the term dissertation. Really, when I think of a dissertation, I think of a lengthy discourse, but really what it is is almost just a short to the point message that James give us, gives us concerning the tongue the danger of it, the potential of it, the ability of it to change the course of a man's life and to destroy all that God is doing in his life. You know, the book of James is a very practical book. Uh, James probably viewed himself, more than anything, as a completed Jew, as a Jew that had come to know Christ as his Savior, uh, had been elevated, transcended above what Old Testament uh, judicial worship could provide. And so he had a very practical perspective in his relationship to spiritual truth. It's the reason James talks about faith and works and he is not necessarily giving a great theological treaty in an endorsement of works above faith because the Bible don't teach works above faith. Rather, he is teaching the importance of a practical faith that works. That's what my pastor used to say. Not faith and works, but a faith that works. And you'll find this all through the book of James, this sort of practical perspective about spiritual truths. So it should not be a surprise to us that of all of the uh, issues in a man's life, of all of the downfalls and pitfalls that James could warn a man against, that he'd go right to the heart of the matter and deal with what is most of our biggest problem, and that is the tongue. The ability to control what we say, how we communicate one with another. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but my tongue gives me a lot of trouble. The things I say... I'll be honest with you. I feel like maybe if I just went uh, mute all of a sudden, about half my I'd have one or two new problems, but about ninety-seven percent of my old ones would probably go away. It's a wonder I get to say anything at all. I've got to get my foot out of there uh, long enough to be able to say anything, but somehow it seems as though how we talk, how we communicate, the things that we say, uh, the things, uh, the issues of our heart that we disclose, and the way that we speak those things to other people seem to cause more problems in our life than just about any other plague, any other affliction. And James observing this gives some very strong language of warning to us concerning the tongue. Now he gives us four examples of what the tongue is. And I'll go ahead and give them to you tonight before we preach them. In verses 1 down through verse number 5, he describes to us that the tongue can be an unconquerable bridle. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, it's something that directs a body, directs the person, directs the course of life. And it is something that cannot necessarily be fought against. Rather, that tongue must be put in subjection unto God so that it guides in the right way. As we already said, some of us spend all of our time just trying to clean up the messes that we've made with the things that we say. The truth of the matter is, until we put our tongue under subjection to God and let the Spirit of God govern how we communicate, we're going to continue to have those problems. We can't just talk any old way that we wish and hope and expect our life to turn out the way that we want. Those two things must communicate with each other. So he describes it as an unconquerable bridle. At the end of verse number 5, James says, Behold how great a matter, a little fire kindleth. And he goes on in verse number 6 to describe what this fire is. And We could maybe say it this way. He uh, describes the tongue as an unconquerable bridle. But number 2, he says that it can be an unquenchable fire. In other words, uh, there's things that our tongue can get started in the way of trouble in our life. That are a lot easier to get started than they ever are to get put out. A fire is a lot easier to start than it ever is to put out. It can only take one spark, but sometimes it can burn down half the countryside. There are parts of our country, and there's many reasons for this. There's a, a lot of it has to do with, uh, you know, government not permitting, uh, forest management. It has to do with, uh, drought conditions, poor management, things like that. Uh, but there are places uh, across this country where year-wide they spend millions, billions of dollars paddling wildfires trying to stop them. Well, every one of those fires started with just one spark. It didn't take much to start it, but it sure has took a lot to try to stop it. Down in verse number 7, James begins to talk about animals, and particularly tame animals. And he observes that the tongue is not tame. It cannot be tame. We could say this, that it can be an untameable Beast. We'll say a word about that before we're done. And then finally, in verses 9, 10, 11, 12, and 13, he begins to use the analogy of a fountain. And he says, you know, the tongue, it is a disconsolate thing. In you know, other words, uh, sometimes the tongue is schizophrenic in its behavior. It will say one thing one second and another thing Another second. It will talk one way. You've met people like this. You you might have been people like this. I have in my life. That in one breath we're saying the right thing. We turn right around before we've even took a breath and begin to say the wrong thing. We could say it this way, that the tongue can be an unpredictable fountain. That what it puts out of it is not necessarily always cohesive in its spirit and in its content. So what can we learn from these four statements? Well, notice first off verse number one. This whole passage begins with an exhortation. James says, My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. Can I boil that down to a little bit of East Tennessee hillbilly language that might be pretty familiar for us to understand? Uh, Keep your nose out of everyone's business because people hate Christians enough as it is. Uh, Just standing for what is right, just the situations you're going to have to say something on are going to be plentiful enough that I promise you, you will not be short upon enemies. And so there's no reason to offend people further on matters that are incidental, that are not of importance uh, when there is enough that we're going to have to take a stand on. It's interesting that James shows us that the quickest route to offense is to open our mouth. I I will tell you this, there's been times that people have said things to me, they might as well have hit me in the mouth. In fact, to be honest, I would have probably preferred it. Amen. Uh, there have been times that people have done me wrong, but maybe because of the way that they've done it, the disposition, the spirit in which they've done it, I've been willing to forgive them. When other times people have given me compliments that just nailed me to the floor. You, you ever met people that know how to give what they call them backhanded comments? Give you a comment makes you feel so good you just won't crawl in the gutter? You know what I'm talking about? What James is saying is this, we as believers already have opinions on a myriad of things that the world is not happy with. And those opinions and those positions, those convictions, those stands, they are biblically mandated. And because of that, how does he say this? Be not many masters. We don't have to have an opinion on everything under creation. One of the great dangers of the social media age that we're in is it's made us think that people care what we have to say. And i got news for you. Most people don't. I mean, listen, I'm a a preacher. I I would assume to some degree. But I'm under no delusion that folks care what my personal opinion is. You're here to hear the Word of God tonight. I hope that's why you're here. What the Word of God says is, is what matters. And, you know, some of this we say tongue in cheek, but it's the truth of the matter. We have come to believe through social media that the Internet just sits around watching what we have to say. And it is hard for us to understand that the vast majority of people could care less. They don't care what you had for lunch. I don't mind you putting a picture of it. I ain't mad about it. I'm just saying they don't care. They don't listen. I love my children. My children are, are beautiful. They're amazing. They're precious. I love them to death. Uh, I love them more than anyone else does. And I love to see pictures of them. But I learned this a long time ago. Uh, I may love it. That don't mean everybody else enjoys it. Amen. No, you don't have to amen if you feel bad about that. But I'm speaking the truth to you tonight. And what I am saying is this. There are enough matters in life that we have to have an opinion. We have to have a position on And we do as Bible believers. Things that are going to offend people. Things that are going to make people angry. James says, why would we make it our job to have an opinion on everything that we're not required to have an opinion on? It is okay sometimes to say, I don't care. It just ain't my business. I don't care. I don't have to have an opinion about that. So I'm not going to have an opinion about that. James says this, be not many masters. Because there is a great danger in our life and sometimes we can robe our personal opinions in the vestige of righteous indignation because we are so familiar with the idea of taking a biblical position that we make every personal position a biblical position and stand on it and die on it as though it is gospel James says, hey, there's going to be enough things you're going to have to take a stand on. There's no reason to run around having to stick your nose in everything and being everybody's master in their life. He tells us this, in many things we offend all. Then he makes this statement, if any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man and able also to bridle the whole body. Now, you and I both understand that the word perfect in the Bible does not necessarily mean morally spotless or morally sinless, but rather uh, it means something that is mature, something that is complete. And here's what James is saying. He's saying, inasmuch as we endeavor to master something in our life, we can run around trying to master everyone else, or we can make our business our business and just simply spend time trying to master ourselves saying we're running around trying to run everybody else's business, but we ain't running our business. We're telling everybody else how to live and what to do, but we're letting our language, our tongue, our life, our opinion run rampant, burn like a wildfire in our life. He's saying very similar to what the Lord Jesus said in the gospel, pull that, that beam out of your own eye before you go trying to pluck that mode out of somebody else. He's saying, in other words, in our life, the key to mastery of self. And I'm careful how I say that because I understand that can that can have sort of an Eastern connotation. But the key to mastery of self is not mastery of self. Rather, it is submission to the Spirit of God. And the first area of our life that the Spirit of God is going to put the bridle on, going to put the shackle on, is going to be our tongue, our communication, the way we talk one with another. Uh, He says this, we think that we can govern the world around us by constantly voicing our opinion. But in fact, in doing that, we are illustrating our inability to master ourselves. If we could master our own tongue, our own communication, govern what we say, we would find in that the course and the path to mastering everything else in our life. He gives an exhortation in verses 1 and 2, but then he gives us an example of this. Verse number 3, he gives us a natural example. He says, Behold, we put bits in the horses' mouths that they may obey us. And we turn about their whole body. Verse 4, he gives us a nautical example. He says, Behold also the ships, which though they be so great and are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listed. In other words, he is saying this to us, James is, that we have the ability to corral and concentrate the force of our life in very distinct directions. And the way we do that is through how we communicate. Has it ever dawned on you that everything living in here never sees this out here unless it comes out here? You could be crazy as a sprayed hornet and the world wouldn't know it if you kept your mouth shut. But we unleash upon the world around us all that is inside of us through our communication. What is communication? Have you ever thought about it? Communication is the ability to articulate or to uh, express outward the thoughts that live within us. Inasmuch as there is so much living within us, we have our mind, we have our soul, we have our passions, our desires, our plans, our ambitions. All this is contained in our heart, mind, and soul. The way that it reaches out and touches the world around us is how we communicate. So why then would we treat lightly the things that we say? If a person can master their their tongue, their communication, what they've done is taken all that is within them and harnessed it and funneled it in the direction that God would see fit and that is most productive. Think about the two illustrations here when it talks about the horse. You know, even to this day when a person buys a car, they talk about the uh, ability of that car, the the power that it has, the, the ability to go at a certain speed, to move the mass of that vehicle with a certain amount of efficiency. It's described as horse power. All throughout human history, a horse has been a means of harnessing, of pulling, of exerting great force. And yet the thing that turns that horse is that little piece of metal in between its teeth. In the same way, he talks about a ship and he even goes a little further with the ship because it's not just the great mass and bulk of that ship, but through a ship's sails, it literally has the ability to harness the winds of the planet. And yet the direction that it is, that it is uh, turned in, the direction that it is concentrated in is determined by the smallest piece of the whole ship. He's trying to get us to understand that so much of... Mas- Remember, it's practical truth. So much of mastery in our life We think we got to fix everything that is broken about us. James says, while it is true that the Holy Spirit of God desires to make us more into the image of Christ, we can immediately half our trouble by simply getting our tongue under control. If we could just learn to yield our tongue to the Lord, then we have yielded to Him the gateway of our interaction with the world around us. And though we may be all kinds of messed up inside, God has control of how it floods out into the world outside and God can do much to use us greatly if we can just put our tongue under His control. He gives us this simple explanation in verse 5. He said, even the tongue is a little member and it boasts of great things. It turns the course of a man's life and of a man's destiny. So he describes it first as an unquenchable bridle. Number two, look at the end of verse 5. He says, even so the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. And I, listen, I think this verse break is what, where it needs to be. I, I don't, I know some people like to go in and try to say it ought to have be been here or ought to have be been there. I've never liked that. I think the guys that translated this a lot smarter than you or me. And I think God had his hand on the translation of this. And so I don't like to do that. I think this is a perfect segue. Now, what do we mean? Well, James has just said, hey, it's a little member, but it boasts of great things. And it's almost like James is saying, and you know what else that's like? He says in verse number five, behold, how great a matter, a little fire kindleth. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So he describes it first as an unconquerable bride. And number two, he describes it as an unquenchable fire. He speaks of the force of the tongue's fire. He says, you know, it begins with that little spark. And by the way, while it is true that just one word can set off a whole firestorm of hurt and heartache in our life, I do not think that is the illustration that James is giving. Rather, I think what he's saying is, you know, that tongue is a small thing. It looks like it'd be easy to control. It looks like it'd be easy to handle. The only problem is that that tongue is the direct appendage of our thoughts and will. It's not the tongue that's hard to control. It's the will that disciplines the tongue. And he's saying, you know, that tongue you'd think that'd be easy to handle. You'd think that'd be easy to control. I mean, we all just, we all know we'd be better off probably if we all took a bunch of monks' oaths of silence. Amen. Uh, we, we'd probably be better off. If we'd just quit talking, you know? And yet how difficult it is to control what we say. There are times when, I mean, listen, there are times in my life when real time, I mean, it's like watching a train wreck. It's like my common sense, the witness of the truth of the Word of God, the sweet Holy Ghost of God are all clawing at me, trying to get me to shut my mouth and not say what I'm about to say. And somehow in the midst of all of that, my tongue bursts through like a greyhound at a track, gets ahead of the Lord and says something that I should have known better than to say. You'd think that would be easy to fix. Well, I mean, you'd think. You'd think. I mean, listen, I, I'm, I'm big 200 I mean, pounds and, and a grown man. You'd think I could handle that. And yet I find this. Hey, listen, behold how great a matter a little fire can be. It's not necessarily saying you say one word and it sparks fire, although that can be true in our lives. But rather what it is saying is just as fire does not have to be big to grow big, your tongue does not have to be big in your life in order to cause great destruction to the world around you. He talks about the force of the tongue's power. Number two, he talks about the course of the tongue's fire. He says, So is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the course of nature. Now that's an interesting statement, the course of nature. The language literally has the idea of a wheel that's spinning and turning. And I think what James is talking about here, is the natural rhythms of life. You know, I don't know about you, maybe I'm just a boring individual, but I like it when life falls into a rhythm. I like things to have a modicum of predictability. I, I like to sort of understand what's coming around. I don't want just mayhem all the time. I don't, I don't want just chaos all the time. You call it spontaneity, I call it a headache. Somebody say amen to that. I, I like a little bit of predictability. And what James is saying is there is a way that God has designed life to go. But just as fire has the ability to disrupt the natural rhythms of nature, and it does, it can change crop cycles, it can change... Uh, molecular or mineral balances in soil. It can cause things to grow that wouldn't have grown. It can prevent things from growing that would have grown. It can change the way that wildlife inhabits a place or interacts with a place. The the, the, The fire has the ability to change everything about it and leave only a wasteland behind it. In the same way, the tongue has the ability to take everything in your life that has stability, that has peace, that has productivity, and burn it to the ground. What is the course of it? Well, what's the course of fire? Fire goes where it is fed. I want you to listen to what I'm about to say right here. I might help you. Uh, the tongue goes to where it's listened to. It goes to where it's fed. Fire goes wherever there's something to destroy. Say, so preacher, what will my tongue do in my life? How can it destroy my... It, it'll destroy everything there is to destroy. And it will reach out for those things that gratify it and feed it. You know, you will find that there will always be somebody to listen to the things that we say that we ought not be saying. You'll always listen. The devil always put a gospel there to listen. The devil always put somebody there to listen to whatever lies we may tell ourselves and, and tell others. The devil always put somebody there. And it, it is like a fire that feeds upon itself and consumes everything in its path. The fire consumes and there's nothing left behind. What is the course of the tongue's fire? Well, it it goes in whatever direction that there is fodder for it, that people will listen, that people will countenance what we have to say. But after it is all done, there is nothing but a wasteland Left over. It will destroy them. It will destroy you. It will destroy everything. And why is that? Well, notice this. The force of the tongue's fire. It's a, it, it, behold how great a matter a little fire kindleth. And the Bible says it's a world of iniquity. We could say a lot more just about that phrase, a world of iniquity. There's no telling what our tongue is capable, what kind of problems, what kind of shame to the name of Christ our tongue is capable of producing. But then he talks about the course of the tongue's fire, uh, that it defileth the whole body, it setteth on fire the course of nature. But then he says this, he points to the source of the tongue's fire. He makes a strong statement here. He says, it is set on fire of hell. What a fascinating thing. It is set on fire of hell. What is he suggesting to us? He is suggesting that the same flames that burn in eternal judgment in hell, are the same flames that our tongue is set on fire of and that our tongue sets fire to in our lives around us. Could we maybe say it this way, that there is a satanic energizing to the activities of the tongue in a person's life. In other words, listen, i got news for you. You you ever said something and the exact wrong person heard it? And you thought to yourself, I wish anybody had heard what I said but then. And you might have thought to yourself, I shouldn't have said it. You might have thought it was okay to say it, but they're going to take it and twist it and misconstrue it and use it, weaponize it again. But but you've thought to yourself, boy, I would give any I can't believe they heard what I said. I wish they had not heard. They're the worst person to hear. Can I tell you this? Hell hears everything we say. The devil's listening carefully to what we say. And he'll take things that we say that we may be mean harmlessly, or maybe uh if he can twist them and misconstrue them. He doesn't mind doing that. He'll take the things that we've said and he'll try to use them to weaponize them to destroy our lives and the lives of others. You say, now preacher, what can a man do against that? I mean, how can I be smarter than the devil and make sure that what I'm saying can't be used against me? Uh, You can't. But the Holy Ghost can. This is why the only answer to this thing, I'll go ahead, I'll give you that. We'll go ahead and flip the cereal box over and get the prize before we're done eating it. You ready? You know what the punchline of this whole sermon is? You can't control your tongue, but God can. If you give God control of your tongue, it goes a long ways towards God having control of your whole body, of your whole life. You can't do it, but God can. God can. You say, preacher, if the devil will take what I say and use it to destroy it, I mean, how can I outsmart him? You can't. And the sooner you realize you can't and yield your uh, communication, yield your thought life and your communication life to the Lord, the sooner that it is vouchsafed against his predation. Because only the Holy Ghost can take and sanctify our words in a way that they are unfit for the devil's use. So I see that it is; it, it can be, I should say it that way, it can be, an unquenchable fire. Then he says this in verse 7. I thought this was interesting. He says, For every kind of beast and of birds and of serpents and of things in the sea is tame and hath been tamed of mankind. It's interesting. I I sort of am tracking along with what God's saying there. I'm with God up until He gets to serpents. Then me and God have to have a conversation. Amen. If you're one of those people who keep snakes in a big bowl at home, that's between you and God, but uh, don't bring me around. Somebody say amen to that. That's That's not my speed. I, I just, I, I'm not, you say, preacher, do you have a phobia of snakes? No, a phobia is an irrational fear. I have a perfectly rational fear of snakes. Like, I, I'm not afraid it's gonna, it's gonna, you know, like squeeze me to death. I'm afraid if it's got poison and it, it's gonna bite me and I'm gonna die. And that is perfectly reasonable and rational, alright? But it's interesting the way that, that James says this here. He says, you know, you look around, and every category of animal life, mankind has been able to tame. And yet he has not been able to tame the tongue. And I thought about that word tame. What does it mean to tame something? It does not merely mean to master it. There are certainly, I mean, the Bible tells us that God gave Adam dominion over all creation. I mean, listen, I'm not a fan of mosquitoes. I'm not a fan of, uh, you know, of, of I hate starlings. We ain't going to get into a big thing about it because I'm preaching a message, but I hate starlings. Uh, but... At the end of the day, I ain't afraid of none of them. I ain't worried we're going to be swept away by a great swarm of starlings. We have the mastery of all things. Uh, God has put creation under the dominion of man. But mastery is not the same thing as tame. Can I use this word? We're pretty familiar with it. He talks about the domestication of the tame. And that's what it means to tame something. It implies two things. One, I would say this, that to tame something is to enlist it into your work or your cause. It is to take something like we have uh, cows or like we have mules and to be able to yoke something to it and use it reasonably for our benefit and for our ability. That's what it means to tame something. I would say there's a second thing, a second dynamic to the idea of taming something. To tame is to enlist something in our uh, work or in our pursuit. Number two to tame is to entrust something a part of the reason when we bring an animal into our home we are trusting that animal We know it is an animal. We know it has the ability uh, to hurt us. I mean, it has. if it's a dog, if it's a cat, if it's a whatever it is, a dog has sharp teeth, chances are probably every one of you that's got a dog, you can probably kill your dog before it killed you, but not before it put a hurting on you. And you've brought that animal into your house and you trust that animal. You trust it to be around your children. You trust it to be around your spouse. You trust it to be around your stuff. Some of y'all, if you've got a golden retriever, you shouldn't trust it to be around your stuff, but you trust it to be around your stuff. And there is a certain level of of honor and trust between the two. So to tame, Brother Charlie, it's to enlist it, to say, I can use this. I am smarter than this animal and I can use it for my benefit. Uh, The mule doesn't understand why we put a harness on it, but that don't matter. We're smarter than it. So we're going to use it to pull heavy objects or to pull a plow or whatever it might be because we are confident that we are smarter than that animal. Number two is to trust it. We believe that we have that animal's loyalty and affection. Now stop and think about what James says in the next statement. He says, but the tongue can no man tame. He does not say it cannot be mastered. He says it cannot be tamed. What's the difference between mastering something and taming it. Well, to master is to merely have sheer brute force dominion over top of something. To master it is to have control over top of it. I remember I used to have a dog, I, and I'm not. I like a dog as much as the next guy. I don't have one right now because I've got two kids and they're messier, and uh, it's all I can do to keep up with them. But but the you know we used to have a dog. I used to have a boxer dog, and and his name was Brody. I didn't name him that. But that was what his name was, and Brody was a big old brindle boxer dog. He looked mean. He was not mean. uh, He was dumb, but he wasn't mean, and he was a sweet dog. And I remember one day, me and Brody, we he had I got him when he was about a year old, and he had all these bad habits, and he had all this sass and attitude like a child. And so I I was trying to, I I was saying, now how am I going to get control of this dog? He's big. And so what I learned is I had to be the alpha. With this dog. You know what I'm talking about, right? I had to show this dog that we were in a pack of two and I ran it. And so what I did, I remember one day I was telling the dog to do something and it wouldn't do what I was telling it to do and I told it what to do and it wouldn't listen to me and I told it what to do. And so finally I tackled the dog. I wrestled it to the ground. I held it down and I got in its face and I screamed at it as loud as I could. I don't know what the dog was thinking, but it worked. Whatever it was. I growled in its face and I screamed at it. And that dog was a different dog from that day forward. Say, preacher, what had you done? I had mastered it, right? I had shown it, I am in charge. But now that don't mean I could have said, Brody, sit. He'd sit down and wag his little nub of a tail that he didn't have. Didn't mean that he had been tamed. It just meant he had been mastered. Say, preacher, can the tongue be mastered? Yes, by the Spirit of God. Preacher, can the tongue be tamed? No, it cannot. To tame it is to say, I can use it for my purposes because I'm smarter than it. You. you know, sometimes we get the idea that that we're, we're smarter than everybody. We're smarter than what? And we can use the things that we say to manipulate and coerce because we're smarter. You know the problem with telling lies is eventually you get caught in that web of your own lies. You can't remember everything you've said. You started down that path because you thought you were smarter than the tongue. But come to find out, the tongue made a fool of you. And showed you, you weren't smarter than the tongue. See, it cannot be enlisted in because we are smarter than it. Instead, we have to recognize that unchecked, it will lead us to destruction. And only, the tongue can't be set free to run wild. It's got to be put under subjection to the Lord. You know why? It's not a tame creature. It's not a tame creature. Number two, what does it mean to tame? It means to entrust it. To entrust it. You bring that animal into your house because you trust it. You know, our problem is sometimes we trust our tongue. And and again, the tongue. What is the tongue? It is the expression, manifestation, revelation of our inner thoughts. It is communicating that which our heart and our mind and our will and discipline believes and says and and feels. And it is instead of putting it through the filter of God's Word and of the authority of the Spirit of God, we just say, no, I'm just going to say what I want to say. We think we can trust it. But you know what you'll find? It is a wild animal and it will bite you every single time. There's never been a time that I've spoke without thinking that it has turned out well. There's never been a time when the Holy Ghost has put His finger on my lips that I've pushed Him away and spoken in self-will that it has turned out well. I've never, ever been able to trust my tongue to speak apart from the Lord and it turned out well. It is an untamable creature. It cannot be tamed. That's what it says. The tongue can no man tame. Number two, it cannot be trusted. It is an unruly evil. And you know, this is interesting. I'm not going to preach this. I'm just going to mention it and move on. It says, full of deadly poison. You know why? You know why you can't tame the tongue? Because it just takes once for it to put you in a coffin. You know why we don't keep poisonous snakes as pets? I hope you don't keep poisonous snakes. Just go on the record. If you've got a poisonous snake uh, Walridge Baptist Church does not endorse that. Don't bring it around here. Don't carry it around here. Uh, and if, and if you get bit and die and you thought that was faith, I'm sorry, you're gonna get to heaven and find out it was stupidity. Man? So I'm not, I don't endorse that. I don't truck with that. I, I there ain't no Bible for that. Not a bit of it. But let me say, why do we not keep those? Because the risk is too high. The risk is too high. I'm going to tell you my feelings. This is going to make some of y'all mad. That's okay. That's all right. I planned on it anyway tonight. I, as my boys get older, I might start keeping an animal in the house. Right now, I don't. Now, you may, and I, that's fine. If you don't disagree with this, that's between you and God. I'm not mad at you don't be mad at me. But you say, preacher, why don't you get them little boys a dog? Because Schofield is three years old, and just about any dog we get, could destroy him, could hurt him before I could even get to it to stop it. Now, you don't have to agree with what I'm about to say, but I'm just telling you my opinion. To me, the risk is too high. Say, said, but preacher, they're domesticated and they're tame. Yeah, but I love that little boy. And it would only take one mistake, one moment, one blink of an eye. Preacher, why can't we trust the tongue? Because it's full of deadly poison. It don't have to run buck wild for two years to destroy you. It can just speak one word. And that's all it takes to put you in a grave. It cannot... You say, but preacher, you know, i got pretty good control of my tongue. Oh, do you? Can you guarantee that everything you say, except it's under the direction of the Holy Ghost, is always going to be edifying and always going to be glorifying Christ? Most of us would say, well, preacher, I can't guarantee that. Yeah, that's right. And it's full of deadly poison and it only takes once. No telling how many churches have been blown up by one or two words spoken. How many marriages been destroyed by one or two words spoken. How many friendships been burnt to the ground over one or two words spoken. I'm telling you, it's full of deadly poison. It don't take much. It don't take much. So when I read this, I, I, I learn these, these three things. I, I learn that it is an unconquerable bridle. It's an unquenchable fire. It, it can be an untamable beast. But then finally, look at verse 9. I'm just going to mention this in passing and then we'll be done, it can be an unpredictable fountain. He speaks first off in verse 9 about the talk of a corrupt tongue. He says, Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Now, the big $10 word, but it's the most accurate one we could give, would be the word disconsonance. It means a disagreement that is so noticeable as to be jarring. And James says, you know, it's an amazing thing that with the same mouth, we could curse men and we could bless God. And yet he says, you know, that mouth has the potential to do both those things. It's probably been true of your life. I know it's certainly been true in mine. But there have been times that I have been that schizophrenic in my communication where that one minute I was praising God for His goodness and the next I was chewing somebody up, cutting them to ribbons, saying something ugly or criticizing them. I've been guilty of that. I bet you've been guilty of it too in your life. That should tell us something. It should tell us the great and great potential and danger of the tongue to destroy men's lives. It should tell us that it cannot be trusted. By the way, let me say this. It is not that appendage in and of itself that is so evil as a physical object, but rather it's that we as natural human beings are double-minded and unstable in all of our ways. It's that in our heart lives those things. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. And it's that the God has given us a great... You know, we talk about it. Let me say it this way. All, all night tonight, I've been preaching about how awful the tongue is. And that's true. That's the spirit of our text. But can I say that the tongue can be a great blessing? For think about the fact that we could, we could control, we could build a gate against all of the wickedness that so often is in our heart and minds. Where that, though it may reside there, unchecked in front of the Lord, we could at least restrain it from affecting the world around us. They say, preacher, what should we do about that? Well, we ought to get that darkness, that wickedness dealt with before the Lord. Let Him cleanse us of it. Let Him deal with it. But what a blessing it is that there's days that the only way that I can keep any relationships in my life is just to not talk. You ever had days like that? There's days I ain't fit to kill. I'm serious. There's days I ain't fit to drag out to the woodshed and shoot. And you'd know it if I opened my mouth. Now, there's days I do open my mouth. and That's a whole other thing. My wife can give testimony about that later. But what I'm saying is think about the fact that that could be present in our hearts, minds, and lives, but God has given the ability to restrain that only by gaining mastery over that one little appendage. He speaks about the talk of a corrupt tongue. And I'm just going to mention it in the next few verses. He talks about the tragedy of a confusing tongue. He says, Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. Do the fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter, can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either a vine fig? So can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. And you know, you know who that's the greatest tragedy for? For the man that comes to drink at the fountain. You know who it's the greatest tragedy for? The man that comes to eat at the fig tree. The man that comes thinking he's getting one thing, And instead getting another. I thought you was a Christian. I can't believe I'm hearing you talk this way. I thought you were a child of God. What a tragedy it would be for men to hear the words of our lips in our moments of rebellion and disobedience and think that's what the sweet fountain of the gospel of the grace of God sounds like. But you know, when we don't keep our tongue in check, when we allow our flesh to operate and to, and to move our communication, That's the very thing the world's going to think. I've had it said to me, it's a tragedy, and sometimes it's been justly and sometimes unjustly. Uh, It seems like a lot of times these people come up to you and want you to give them money, and uh, if they know I'm a preacher, if I don't give them money, they'll always say, you call yourself a Christian. (laughs) And uh, so sometimes it's been unjustly. Other times it's been justly. Other times I've said something, and the Holy Ghost has smoked my heart because it needed to be smoked but imagine that a person could hear the things we say and think, that's Christianity. That's Christianity. That cussing, that ugliness, that mean-spiritedness, that's Christianity. The great danger in this confusing tongue, the great danger in this unpredictable fountain is somebody's going to drink of it. Somebody's going to listen to it. And they're going to think that's what Christianity is. So then he closes with this thought, verse 13. He speaks about the the talk of a corrupt tongue, the tragedy of a confusing tongue. But then he ends by talking about the testimony of a consecrated tongue. He says, who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Isn't that interesting? Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Now, why does he say it that way? It's almost like James was saying, "Uh, didn't you say you had something to say? You said you were wise and endued with knowledge. That's why you're talking, right? Because the whole world needs to hear what we have to say. He said, if you really believe that, if you really believe that there's something on the inside that you've got to communicate and express and get on the outside, then here's how you show it. He said, let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. I don't have time to unpack everything, But it's interesting that he speaks about our conversation as a manifestation of our works. What he's saying is that the tongue can be a manifestation of our wisdom. Or it could be a manifestation of the working of God in our life. It could be a conduit for our own thoughts, passions, and wills. Or it could be a fountain for the blessed truth of the Word of God that other men may hear it. You see the testimony of that consecrated tongue. If a man can keep his his tongue in check, if a man can bridle his tongue, he can bridle his whole body. We spend all of our time trying to clean up the messes that our tongue has made instead of just putting our tongue in check under the Lord in the first place and letting Him have the governance of it. Wouldn't it be better if we just say, you know, Lord, before I take all this in here and vomit it out there, how about I just stop and say, Lord, what would you have me to say? Let me let you have control of my tongue, of my lips, of my words. Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play. I don't know what the Lord may have dealt with you about. The tongue, I suppose. I suppose letting the Lord have control of our our thoughts and our words. But it might have been the Holy Ghost dealt with you about something else entirely. Something in your life that nobody would know or would guess about. But I'll tell you this, you know, He knows about it. And if He dealt with you about something, you ought to deal with Him. Got to deal with him, preacher. How can I turn this tongue to good use? Well, a good way would be to bow the knee before it at an altar, to confess your sin, to agree with God that it is sin, and to ask Him to forgive you of it, to cleanse you of it, and to help you to walk in righteousness. Let's let's bow, Father. Bless this invitation. May it glorify Your Son. We ask it in Jesus' name.